What would you like to hear? Um, WCBN? WCBN? WCBN, 88.3 FM. Radio Zilla lives there. And Rodan, and Mondro, and King Kidra. Computer? Computer. Tell us, computer, where is Radio Zilla? Computer? Come on. Radio Sundays Zilla. from 2 until Radio 3 p.m. You'll hear a wide variety of modern music from East Asia, only on WCBN, FM, and Burma. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm lucky to have David Ritz here in the studio, um, and also Michael Awkward, professor of English and Center for African American and African Studies here at the university. Um, welcome, gentlemen. Hi. Uh, Happy to be here. Uh, well, it's it's just great to see you here. Well, thank you. It's <laughs> so nice. Um, it, we're taping on the 20th of April, 2009, when, uh, David, you came to the university uh, to give some, some lectures yeah. and, and to connect with some students. Exactly, exactly. And I'm uh, happy to be here. Uh, well, I know everyone's happy to have you as well, well thank you. on this rainy day <laughs> of, of spring. Uh, so, uh, David, just to begin, I'm going to read the biography, uh, the, your, your short bio on the back of one of your books. You've got so many books. If, if I were to start reading the titles of all the books you've been involved with, um, that would basically be the hour. So <laughs> we'll start with this brief bio and then fill in pieces, if that sounds good with you. Anything you want is okay with me. So kind. I know. <laughs> A novelist, lyricist, <laughs> and biographer, David Ritz, is the author of Faith in Time, The Life of Jimmy Scott, The Brothers with the Neville Brothers, Blues All Around Me, the autobiography of B.B. King, Aretha, From These Roots, Etta James, A Rage to Survive, and Brother Ray, Ray Charles' own story, the winner of four Gleason Awards for Best Music Book of the Year, and co-writer of Marvin Gaye's 1982 hit, Sexual Healing, Ritz lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Roberta. Um... So that's why we led with that song. Uh, so David, as a, a writer, let's start with then your co-writing of Sexual Healing with Marvin Gaye. Excellent place to start because I love the story. Uh, Ostend, Belgium, uh, dark night, um, the spring of 1982. Marvin was in exile. He was being chased by the IRS. He was in debt. Uh, he was off of uh, Motown. They had kicked him off the label because he was a bad boy, and he got a new deal on Columbia Records. Hadn't had a hit since Got to Give It Up, 
which was sort of this bizarre autobiographical uh, disco hit. And he was cold, 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 cold. And um, and you'd flown over to join him I, there. I flew over to join him because I'm crazy. You know, I had done this biography of, this autobiography of uh, Ray Charles and... I got through with that. I wanted to do a book with Aretha Franklin, and I couldn't catch up with her. She had no interest in doing a book then, and I started writing novels. But I uh, really wanted to connect with uh, Marvin Gaye, and and um, he put in an, out an album called Here My Dear, which is, his, again, autobiographical album about his divorce from Anna Gordy Gaye, who was his uh, first wife. And and you wrote an article um, uh, almost defending or, or putting, because critics had panned that album, exactly. right? As self, you know, sort exactly. of. Exactly. And so so that had been a connection where you spoke well, in a public forum. No, 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 no. For, Actually, on his behalf? A, very close okay. to the story, but I congratulate you for knowing that because not many people do. The album here, my dear, which I was convinced was worthy of, you know, the Nobel Prize was attacked by the LA Times and uh, as called, you know, uh, whimsical and uh, uh, indulgent and uh, superficial and superfluous and all these things. And they didn't go, they, they didn't spare the horses. On no, I mean, that. It, yeah. was, it was a brutal attack. And I had been listening to the album at that point nonstop. I mean, I was like, jonesed out on this album and music had always been just at the core of your life like as a young man and, yeah and, and i i your, your i just art. have to just um um a fan i mean i'm just a fan i mean i i am a fan and and you know uh and so anyway so i answered the critic now you have to understand i've had books that have been attacked by critics i've never answered because i you know figure why the hell it takes time to answer the critic you know i gotta go on and do another book and you know they whatever they think let them you know you can't change the world but in answering the critic i had two things in mind one i did think it needed to be answered because i was so passionate about the worth of this work and in my answer i compared it to mingus and uh duke ellington and stevie wonder as a kind of a narrative work of you know blah blah but i also was hoping that in writing his letter to the new york times his letter to the editor that marvin would read it and would be a way for me to hook up with him and that's exactly what happened so marvin read the letter and he called me and he said gee it's really great if you i've got to meet you and I met Marvin, we became friends, and I got to begin research to do his autobiography. He wanted the kind of book that I did with uh, Ray Charles. So, and which could you just please, for a moment please. qualify that? Because that that's a book where you um, you you help Ray Charles to write it in his own voice. Yeah, and that's a, what I primarily am is a ghost writer. Uh, collaborative that's I, autobiography is that the I call form it name? <laughs> ghost writing. Ghost writing. I love okay. the name ghost writing. I used to hate it because it didn't seem. Ooh. No, it <laughs> wasn't the creepiness. It was more like it didn't seem cool enough. And I'm going to be talking about this in a couple hours, the whole nature of what ghostwriting is. But but I am a ghostwriter, and when I say ghostwriter, and I love it so much because what happens is a ghostwriter is uh, a good ghostwriter will disappear when, when the reader reads the book and, and have the impression that the artist is talking to them as I am talking to you across the table. So when I write a ghostwritten book, I want to disappear. Of course, I don't disappear. 
uh, and I'm in there because I am merging with the artist. But you as a reader will pick up the book and go, wow, B.B. King is talking to me across his kitchen table. And if you hear me, I have not achieved my goal. So ghost writing, I think, is a good term. Uh, and I like, so, so are you, when you're saying that you're in there then David, is it that you're, you're helping to shape the, the flow of the story or the, the sequence of events or how, cause you're saying you shouldn't be recognizable. Your voice shouldn't be coming through, but what is it that where, you know, besides the fact that you're there with all the words and you're shaping the, well, the manuscript, there's literary intercourse. I mean, in other words, there is a, there's a connection, there's a, a, um, there's a bonding, there's a kind of, uh, you know, I go into the person's life, into the person's head. And so that, for example, were I to write the story of your life, and were I your ghostwriter, and you were to tell me your most intimate uh, secrets and have me sculpt it into a story it would come out a lot differently if you had chosen uh, Michael to be your ghostwriter because Michael would ask you different questions. He would bring his uh, sensibility to it. He would give, bring his kind of language, even though he would modify his language to adjust to your language. To speech patterns. You'd yes. get a whole different book. Uh, I mean, I might be interested in your kind of feelings about uh, theology, because I'm interested in theology. Michael might be interested in your feelings about uh, your experiences in um, high school, because he's uh, hung up on his high school experiences. So we'd emphasize different things, so that's why every ghost writer is in the book. But anyway, getting back to the Marvin story... Um, so we hooked up, and uh, I began to write his autobiography, and it was a very uh, circuitous path we uh, followed because Marvin kind of um, was wild, and and uh, you know he'd tell me meet me here, and he'd be in Hawaii, and he'd say, go to Hawaii, I'd get to Hawaii, he'd be in London, I'd get to London, he'd be in Ostend, Belgium, and it was in Ostend, Belgium, where we wrote this. A song. He just was um, very free and very spontaneous and very impulsive. And uh, um, so we were in Ostend, Belgium, and I was accumulating data for his auto for his auto. I was interviewing him, and and I had a tape recorder going. And, and we were in his apartment at Ostend that overlooked the North uh, Sea, and he had this track. That was written by his keyboard player named Odell Brown. It was kind of this funky reggae track. And on the coffee table uh, were um, kind of uh, S&M cartoons by a hip Parisian cartoonist. But um, it depicted women uh, being uh, uh, violated in kind of horrible ways though under the auspices of avant-garde art. And I looked at this book and I said, Marvin, this is some sick stuff. What you need is sexual healing. And he said, what is that? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's, it's where you love a woman for 
pleasure and she loves you for you and the whole thing with pain is not part of the equation and because she really loves you uh, for who you are that uh, you get healed, that this whole notion of introducing uh, pain as part of the uh, sexual process is healed. Now, again, it's a prejudice of mine. I mean, I'm not against S&M and I know great literature has come out of S&M, but it's just two guys having a talk and my expressing to him my point of view. And he said, that's a beautiful phrase. Write a little uh, poem to it. And um, I did. Uh, you know, I wrote when blue teardrops are falling and so forth. And I wrote it down on a uh, yellow pad. And he took the yellow pad and as the reggae track played, he put a melody to the words. And within about seven or eight minutes the tune was written. That's something else, isn't it? It was a beautiful thing. I mean, it was a beautiful... It it was a beautiful thing. Uh, I, I mean, I had never written a song before. Uh, and it happened really quickly and um, uh, changed his life. It changed my life. It was weird because in doing his autobiography, by doing that, I became part of his story. Like the ghost writer... Enters in a character, yes, and then ultimately the ghost writer couldn't be a ghost writer because he was killed uh, uh, before I had the book written. So the autobiography had to become a biography. And so then, did you have to go back and sort of revision the book because then seeing where you're going to start and and the voice and uh, uh, yes. Let's let's we'll come back. We'll start with that. Uh, we're you're listening to David Ritz on Living Writers today. I'm T Hetzel. Um, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, David Ritz is here in the studio. Man, that was sad, wasn't it? And beautiful. Sad. 
Sad. Is that what got you? Is that what mesmerized you? Because when I, I, I read in your book, yeah. uh, Brother Ray, Ray mm. Charles' own story at the end, where you mm. talk about your sister bringing home a Ray Charles album. Mm. And uh, you, you. Well, there's something about the blues. I mean, he got the blues. I mean, it just got the blues. <laughs> there's something about the blues that, um, you know, it took, my, it, it took me my whole life to learn. Of course, I didn't know as a kid when I heard the blues. I just went, wow, I just love this. But then what the blues does is expresses the deepest, deepest pain. But in the expression of the pain, there's joy. So this incredible paradox of your empathizing and your enveloping and embracing and ingesting. And it's getting you through, too. It's getting you through, but it's beautiful. What the hell is that? I don't know. Well, then, then it just seems so, when, as you articulate it that way, it yeah. seems so strongly linked to gospel music yeah. then, too. Right. Yeah. Um, I think all music on some level is gospel music. But that's another... Praising, in a way. Pra- yeah, and transformational. I mean, in other words, transformational, that you come to it one way and you leave it another, that is changing your heart or it's lifting your heart it's lifting your spirit, it's telling your story in a way that you're not able to tell, it's articulating areas where you are inarticulate, all that stuff. So this is a reason that you've devoted a lot of your, maybe a a lot of your your life to to helping um, musicians uh, who you believe to be important, something about their music um, you feel like needs, needs to have have a story told it has to have a, a life in print well i'm also trying to make a living but which so yes that so <laughs> but I wanna, i'm doing that too so yeah i want to talk about that because money 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 <laughs> um uh, that's a song isn't it is it wasn't that in great song. Uh, marvin gaye's no no, no or was it no, okay that's the oj's but okay <laughs> i'm getting confused with all okay. the, the okay. books there that i've been looking through of yours but um so with ray charles like you went to the university of texas you yeah. got uh, at austin mm. i got a b.a right Mm -hmm. and then i'm trying to i don't know the framework exactly and then did you go to buffalo did you go to suny in buffalo get the masters and then you thought look i want to i i want to write ray charles's story yeah and so is that when you sent the telegrams the braille telegrams yeah yeah Yeah. i I mean i was just kind of crazed i i I didn't know what to do i knew i had to meet him i knew i had a i was just operating so had you had published essays at that point? I had, had, you had any journalism, kind of lame journalism, uh, little profiles in magazines, but nothing. Uh, I was not qualified. I was not accredited. I was not. You the hadn't guy. built up the clips. I yet had. To prove I had not anything. built up the clips, but I talked him into it, and I think I was. This is, sounds weird, but I believe that I was led by the Holy Spirit. Now, and we can give definition to the Holy Spirit any way you want to. I mean, well, I'm what's not your definition? Uh, that if our hearts are open, we will be led by a force of light and creativity that we don't understand and that scares us. But that, if we have belief, will yield. 
and make us a so, sort of a vehicle as well. Exactly. Is that the idea? Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's all I know. But 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 when I look back at it, I think it, I mean it happened earlier today, which I'll give an example about later. But I mean, I just think if we if if we're willing to risk and we're willing to be vulnerable because the Holy Spirit, I think, only operates through our vulnerability because our arrogance will cut it off. I know what to do. You can't tell me. I'm going to shape my life. I'm going to do it, you know. And, 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 and so it's this really tricky negotiation between determination and tenacity and kind of surrendering. Do you think that um, your maybe your connection with the like the, these ideas and mm. the, and the mm. spirit mm. also um, like there was something then that Ray Charles could recognize in you and your beliefs that he felt would let allow him to trust you to get so like apparently it seems like it took a while for you to get close to him yes, yeah. for the writing of the the um, brother Ray book mm-hmm. um, but. I think so. I think because this was the turning point of my life in my career, getting him to let me write his autobiography. As a writer. As a writer. As and as a person. Did you have novels before that? Did you have no, things nothing, had you nothing, been nothing. writing? No, no, no. Just no. just jivey little articles in it. but 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 I think this. Uh, uh Michael and I were talking about it. I had a lot of things going for me. One, I am a Negro lover, and two, Ray Charles is a Jew lover. So we definitely a marriage of had a prejudice. I had a prejudice for Negroes. He had a prejudice for Jews. We had that going for us. And I, and I think that's important. But I think more important, you know, kind of prejudices can work for or against you. You know, if I want a woman, like when I heard today I was going to be an, interviewed by a woman DJ or interviewer or whatever the proper term is. I was happy because I have a prejudice about being interviewed by women. I like it. I just like it. So, you know, that's a happy thing. Uh, (laughs) But no, so, but I mean, this was an instance where these two kind of prejudices met. You know, he has high regard for Jews for a lot of reasons. I have high regards for Negroes as a group for a lot of reasons. And so that helped. But I think on a deeper level, what was really happening was he reads people's hearts really well. He's, I mean, the guy had a lot of flaws. And in many ways, he was a raging um, a-hole, though a genius. But, I mean, I don't mean to picture him... (laughs) He was one tough character, but he absolutely read people's hearts, being blind and being having this incredible emotional uh, sensitivity. So he knew I was absolutely genuine in my love for his music and my desire to write a great book. So that's what I think. Now, again, it helped being Jewish, you know, but I think it was mainly the idea that he knew I was uh, genuine and sincere. And and this then, David, this book, this project with Ray Charles, how many years did it take? Two, two, two and, three. Some. And you you say in the book um, that you that he would call you at different times, maybe even at two or three a.m. Yeah. when he'd finish recording, and those would be the times you were very open to then. Yeah. Going over, talking for maybe hours. Or... I had no choice. You, you loved know. it? <laughs> well, I didn't particularly love getting up in the middle of the night, but you know, when Ray Charles calls you, you run. And also you have to understand something else that, about these ghost-written books. You work for the person. 
like you work for the University of Michigan Radio and you got some guy or gal who's... Actually, this is volunteer. <laughs> it's volunteer? Yeah. You can quit at any time? Yes, but we're going to keep going uh, today, Dave. <laughs> volunteer out of love of it. Yes. I love that. Anyway, so that was a bad example. But anyway, right. I work for Ray. Right. I see what you're saying. And when you work for Ray, you got to be on time and you got to go when he calls you because he is one hard taskmaster. Well, let's talk about the writing then, David. Let's get it. Let's get it back to that because Good. is this... Um, so you're always having the recorder running then. Is that fair to say whenever you're Always. with any of the, the, the people you've well, worked with? Once so, you've established rapport. Now, you don't go in there with a tape recorder the first day. Right. Because that little red light can put people <laughs> up tight. <laughs> yeah. But once you, two of you get on the love train, then you can turn on tape recorder. Okay. And so are you working from transcripts then? Or, or can you give us an idea of what, how you're, how you're yes. producing these books? He talks. I tape, I read the transcripts. In the beginning, I did the transcripts. That takes forever. That took forever. When I got enough money, which is fairly recently, I stopped doing my own transcripts because it takes so long. And I hate it. It's so tedious. You know, you're sitting there all day typing. You know, it's like, Lord have mercy. You know, But um, I read the transcripts. I underline. I make notes. And then I forget about the transcripts. And I write. No outline. I write. I do what we're doing now. I make it up as I go along. Now, I have digested the story, mm. and I may go back and ask him more questions. But as a writer, I am, and, you know, editors in the beginning would tell me, well, where's the outline? I don't got one. Well, we need one. Tedious. I would do an outline. It was this thing, you know, I hate it. Just a hoop, basically. I would do it because, you know, they, they're the editors, you know. And then I would throw it away. And ultimately, when I had enough books going, I would tell them, no, I ain't doing the right. outline because I don't use it. Right. So again, I'm not against outlines. I'm not against anything. Would, would that don't work for me. Would, um, and so that's really interesting because the voices are you know, obviously m markedly different in each of the books. Like you have yeah. each of the voices right. that are coming through, whether it's Etta James, right. Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles. Yeah. Um, and and so so that seems very successful so that you're just you've had in the transcription you've had the words kind of coming through you yeah. onto the typewriter or yeah. computer and then well i owe it i mean my sort of basic learn i learned to write uh on a spiritual level um f f uh f uh f f from jazz not from literature i mean there are certain writers who have helped me and i've learned from uh, who have been very important in my life, but not as much as jazz musicians, because what it took me a long time to learn about jazz is that the groove is everything. For me, I'm a groove-oriented guy. I want a groove in music, and, and grooves anchor me and keep me moving through books. They keep me moving through life. You and I have established a groove here. I mean, the world is nothing but grooves. You know, there's the cosmic groove that we don't understand. But so that what happens in jazz is that time is locked in, in measures and bars to anchor you. But the great jazz musicians don't worry about time. They play with time. 
they're able to relax so that the tension of the measured bar leads to relaxation. If you don't worry about time, you have all the time in the world. And at the very same time, this relaxation enables stimulation. So in these time-measured bars, we're relaxed, but Charlie Parker or Louis Armstrong or Ella Fitzgerald is coming up with these brilliant ideas that both stimulate you and relax you. It's almost like your your idea of the Holy Spirit then comes in to exactly. that moment, and or the creative part is opened. Exactly. So that that's what I'm going for as a writer. When I'm at my keyboard, I'm aware of a certain rhythm, but I'm also aware that by relaxing into that rhythm, looking for the pocket, which is at the very end of the beat. You can't rush the beat. And in looking for that rhythm and relaxing into that rhythm, I'm going to develop lots of stimulating ideas. And the, and the voice of perhaps the person that you're working with at the time. Uh, hopefully. And their story. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, a, that's great. We're going to come back. We're going right. to hear more from David Ritz. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers. We'll be back. WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Talk to me, I'll do what you choose, I want you to tell mama all about it, tell mama what you need, tell mama what you want, and I'll make everything alright. That girl you had didn't have no sense, she wasn't worth Hello, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, David Ritz is here. Um, and some of his many books, uh, Divided Soul, The Life of Marvin Gaye, Brother Ray, Ray Charles' Own Story, Etta James, Rage to Survive, The Etta James Story, Aretha from These Roots, The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash, most recently. And then I was looking on your website, uh, ritzwrites.com. Ritzwrites.com. And there's like seven (laughs) books on the dock for release in 2009. So we're not even... No, well, this year I have one, two, three books coming out in the next three or four months, which I'm really um, excited about. So one is the autobiography of Cornell West, uh, which has been a kick in the head and, and, and and... a great joy. One is the autobiography of Lieber and Stoller, these two guys who wrote Hound Dog for Elvis, and they're kind of the Rodgers and Hammerstein of rock and roll. Uh, wrote Jailhouse uh, Rock and a zillion hits. And so they must be getting up there. By now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they wrote "Is That All There Is" for uh, Peggy Lee, and, and just kind of legendary American songwriters. And then I wrote 
the the autobiography. I co-wrote the autobiography of Paul Schaefer, uh, Sh- 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 the of, David Letterman. Yeah, and 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 that, yeah, and that book is he's a a character. He's like, he's like a living uh, Napster. You know, knows every rock and roll song that's ever been done, and has wonderful humor and beautiful taste in uh, music. And that was a kick in the head. So are people coming to you, David, now? Like, after the Ray Charles book, is that what sort of no. set the stage for the rest of these books? <laughs> Janet Jackson, like no. a Rolling Stone articles, everything. No. Well, yeah, and I am working on a book with Janet now that I forgot. But no, it was like years before people came. came. And even now, I'm still chasing down people. I mean, I, there's people I want to do that I have to pursue. Uh, I thought after I did the Ray Charles book, the world would come knocking, but nobody came. I don't know. They just or, didn't or come. maybe so. Maybe it made them more than amenable to when you called. Or... It was a good calling card. Yeah, I mean it was a good calling card. But you know, I, I you know I was you know I'm going to talk about it in this lecture today. You know, I kind of thought you know Mick Jagger would become calling and Keith Richards and. Bob Dylan, he goes, Ray Charles, man, just nobody came. I had, I had a struggle for years after so, the book. So what is it, so could you walk us through what you would do then? Like if there's somebody that you connect to, that you'd like to, you think you'd like to write a book with, what happens? How to chase him? Yeah. <laughs> How to chase him? Uh, well, again, it's a negotiation between allowing the Holy Spirit to work his or her wondrous ways and being aggressive or um, assertive. You know, you write a letter, you get the manager on the phone, you have an agent who maybe helps you, doesn't help you. You uh, mail a postcard, you show up to concert after stage. Uh, you try to be cool in doing it, but it's kind of creepy. It's not fun because you're vulnerable. It's like, do you know who I am? Let me write your book. I love you. <laughs> you, you, you know, but but you got to do it if you want to kind of get gigged up and stay gigged up with the kind of gigs that mean something to you. And it seems as though when you're accumulating that the, the number of people whose mm. history you've had access to and their stories, mm. it's almost as if, you know, that that should, I mean, that's amazing to have that number of stories that are kicking around should in your mind. Should don't work, baby. It's it, should don't work. Um, because it, well, in a way, does that help inform your your own fiction writing? Then is that um, well, everything helps inform my own uh, fiction writing. I, I mean, and you know, the experience you live is all you got, and the more you live, and the more of, uh, interesting life you live, the more interesting kind of fiction you're going to write. At least from my point of view. But y- you know, again, talking about should, I mean. Reality is reality. I'm being a, being a freelance writer, being a freelance ghostwriter, being a freelance nonfiction writer, without having a brand name like, you know, the Stephen Kings of the world where the market's waiting for their next book. People are not waiting for my next book. People may be waiting for a Janet Jackson book or for a Grandmaster Flash book, but they're not waiting for a, my book. Because the ghost writer is at the bottom of the page, and and lots of times in my life, I've I can't tell you how many times this happened to me, where a person would say to me, "Oh, I just read BB King's autobiography. That's a great book." And I and I'd say I wrote it, and they would say, "No, you didn't. He wrote it. It's it's an and, autobiography. It's an autobiography." And then I would stop, and I would think, "Well, I've done my job," but in doing my job, I've disappeared. Yeah, so what's that like as a writer then? It's it's great for your spiritual progress. 
But your ego is kind of crying the blues a little bit. So your ego learns to cope, but it's great. Because, you know, it's true. I mean, I did submerge my ego to tell a story. His name is 10 times bigger than mine on the cover. It is his book. He gets to go on Oprah. I don't. And it's not in the paradigm of writers who are, you know, what we learn is writers. First thing you learn is get your own voice. I mean, no one's ever told me in college, no, don't get your own voice. Help other people get their voice. I never heard that until I got out into the world. Well, in in a way, how you're writing and helping other people get mm. their voices on the page, mm-hmm. um, it reminded me of one of the um, the the short stories that you have in the Advan- Adventures of Grandmaster Flash, mm. when um, he's learning like from when he's maybe fourteen or very young, mm-hmm. and one of the other DJs says to him like it's not. Um, Because he's doing his own thing, which is new, which is totally different. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the disco age and and people want to hear the whole songs. And he's like, you got to look out at them, which is there's three of us up here and there's 300 or more down there. Mm -hmm. And it's their party and we've got it. And so it's kind of interesting. It's almost as if that has echoes of your writing process. That's that's exactly right. And he'd be the first person to say that he's there to serve the party. And the first thing he does as a DJ is try to read the vibe of the party. And this is Grandmaster Flash. This is Grandmaster Flash, the great innovator and the scratcher and, you know, one of the three great pioneers of hip-hop. But, but yeah, his gift was to detach his own musical prejudices and or his inclinations or, and even his culture and try to figure out what's going to work for the crowd. So he had to kind of ghost what they were feeling and give them. So you got to, you know, it's the Dylan, you got to serve somebody. And he was serving the dance floor and I'm serving the stars, you know, I'm serving, you know, and, and, uh, it's a service business, Hmm. you know? (laughs) Well, it is interesting because even looking like just at a, in a small scope of things, Mm. the Etta James rage to survive versus Aretha from these roots, the Mm. voices that are coming through on the Mm. page there are so, Mm -hmm. so, so different. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so you have managed Mm -hmm. to, how was it working, um, in the Aretha book? It is, you said that she almost had to approve every line. So how, how was that also? Like, wait, um, and I guess you said Ray Charles did that too with the process was quite long. Well, that's the challenge. The the challenge with all these people with Aretha and Ray uh, is to, um, figure out it's hard to write with another person. It's hard to, it's easy to do the interviews. It's easy to open them up, usually, usually. There are some notable exceptions, but it's usually easy to um, have a loving conversation. And often one of my techniques is if they are not open, I begin talking about my own problems, my own mother, my own father, my own childhood. So to give them an example of what I want them to do without telling them this is what I want to do. But it's kind of naturally if you're out with your friend and you start talking, oh, I just got kicked to the curb by John and I, you know, and you're being open and vulnerable, then they'll be open and vulnerable. So I use that technique a lot with people who are often closed. But, but so that part I've never had a lot of problems with. But once you get a manuscript, 
not everybody hears themselves the same way. So then it becomes a matter of how they want to appear on the page. Now, my inclination is to keep it raw and real and because I like real conversation and I like real talk and I like kind of bad grammar and I like funk and I like being out of tune and all the things that excite me about um, art. But not everybody feels that way. Some people want to feel they're more proper and they want to, they have aspirations of appearing more educated than they are and they think that's cool and so forth. So, you know, you negotiate and, and, and you have no power. I mean, my only power is the power of persuasion, but in all the contracts it reads, they have the final cut. The final word. Yeah. Right. <laughs> final word. Um, yeah, some because it is amazing that that you've worked with people, you know, like Don Rickles, Gary Sheffield, I, like just so it's not just the music industry yeah. either. You, no. you've, you've almost any anyone. So it's someone catches your imagination and you you well, go uh, about making the pitch to them well, to write or, their story. Or uh, money. I mean, you know, a lot of times uh, if a job is good enough and it gives me enough money that I can live on another year, you know, and I'm a, I'm a middle-class character, you know, with a house and a wife and two children and three grandchildren and, you know, got to pay the MasterCard bill. So, I mean, and have no other job other than writing books. So that, uh, for example, I did a book with uh, Leila Ali, you know, Muhammad Ali's daughter, and, you know, I never did a sports book before, but I met her. She was a... She was a lovely person, an interesting person, a complicated person. Uh, I liked the story. I liked her. I liked her voice. And, you know, so I wrote the book and learned what I had to learn about uh, female boxing. And in the case of Don Rickles, you know, he reminded me of all my uncles, you know, Jewish and cranky and funny. And, you know, so I felt like I knew him my whole life and that was easy to capture his voice. And and, uh, and then you also helped him compile his letters. Yeah, too. helped him compile his letters and rewrote the letters to make him uh, funny. So, I mean... It, You're a pop historian in some ways, aren't I, you? A pop culture... I'm a typist, you know. <laughs> I'm typing, you know. I don't know about that. But but I I try not to... You know, I just try to go with what's in front of me, and I, it's it's like um, I'm about to do a book now with a kind of a, I won't talk about it too much because it may not happen. But I'm I'm about to do a book now with kind of a scandalous situation in in uh, in America. And when it first came to me, I kind of asked myself the question: Do I want to get involved in this person? And then I thought to myself: I do. I like the story. I like the person. So, you know, will it hurt my reputation? I mean, the more is the, it oh, Phil Spector? No, no, no. Okay, no, I won't no. keep guessing. No, 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 no. I mean, it's it's unless it's, you want to tell us. But it it it. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't have been so teasing, but I, I only make the point to tell you that I always have to check myself at a certain point. Am I getting too, like, hotsy-totsy? Am I getting too literary? Am I getting too, I am the grand pasha of this and that? I'm a guy who helps people tell their stories, and I want to be open to people I like and not worry about my respectability or anything else. I mean, I'm there to help them tell their story. And if I'm interested in their story, I'm going to help them. Well, you're certainly doing it. Today, you're listening to David Ritz on Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, David Ritz. Um, so we just heard Marvin Gaye yeah. there again with um, with Troubled Man. Um, and the book, uh, one of David's many out there for you to get. This is a biography because this was this was on the, the table as one of your specialities, the, the collaborative autobiography, ghostwriting gigs. But then... Um, Marvin Gaye's dad shot him. Mm-hmm. And so then the whole scope of the project changed. Exactly. Um, could you talk a little bit about that with the writing? Because we've, we've just heard Troubled Man. And so... What, well, I mean, that was an interesting and, you know, kind of horrible moment when uh, Marvin um, was killed. Because at the time I had, you know, years of interviews. I really hadn't begun the book yet. Nothing was really written. I, I think I had some preliminary pages and had a lot of transcripts um, and I had tried to figure out what it was going to be like his voice kind of tooled with it but really nothing of any uh, substance and of course the other irony is that I was never able to get a publishing deal to write Marvin's autobiography while he was alive because he was so cold at the time nobody wanted to write Marvin Gaye's publish Marvin Gaye's it's autobiography it's hard to even imagine that the publishing it? business like... is cold blooded Cold, well, that part I can imagine. Blooded, remains <laughs> colder than ever. It's always been cold. I mean, you don't know what they're going to publish on. But anyway, of course, when he was killed, every publisher in the country called me and said, we want his biography because we know you've been working on it because we rejected the autobiography too, a year ago, so we didn't give you enough money to go chase after him. I had to spend my own money to work on the autobiography because I didn't have a contract. See, that's what I was wondering too. Like, How do you fly to Hawaii, fly my to Belgium, wife, fly to... I have a wonderful wife who said go i know you have to go and it was crazy i mean you know it was really i mean people and my agent thought i was crazy I mean, what are you doing you don't have a contract and i said man marvin's telling me his story i got to go this brother is laying it out and no one else is hearing it and i and i mean everything in me, i'd even hesitate 
two young children who I adore, you know, adore my little babies. And they were like, you know, but, but I'm gone to Belgium. I'll be back, but I got to go. So there wasn't even any hesitancy about the urgency to document and get the information. But when he was killed, the predicament was this. I had enough to do his autobiography. And as you know in the book, the book is full of Marvin Gaye quotes, maybe half the book or third the book. But from a moral point of view, I can't put out an autobiography that's not been authorized by the guy. Because the whole thing about autobiography is that it's his book. And he never read a word of what I wrote. So it would have been the height of presumption and gone against you know, my moral code. But don't you think it's also better to have it as a biography? Because then as the writer, then you do have more control in the shaping. And Well, again, and, and I have a peculiar point of view about this. I would have preferred an autobiography. Um, and later on, I would write another biography of Little Jimmy Scott. It's the only other biography I've written. But my preference is always to do autobiography. I do it, first of all, it's easier for me to channel a voice and to, to speak in my own voice. So I like my voice, and I like my prose style, and I like to read what I write, and it isn't that um. But I, I love ghosting, and, and I would have preferred, and, and I think from a historical point of view, I think it's incredibly important that we read the mythopoetic version that people have of themselves bad or good. We, it's, it's great. And I think from a scholarly point of view, now that we're here at the uh, austere or auspicious, whatever the word is, <laughs> esteemed university, all those things, all those things thank you. Uh, but I think from a scholarly point of view, um, we always begin with what the person has to say about him or herself. I mean, even discredited autobiographies like uh, Lady Sings the Blues by Billie Holiday, which I love. Well, and you wrote the foreword. It, yeah, I wrote the foreword and came to its defense. But even books like that, which scholars have come to say, they all begin with that book because it's there. It's who, her picture of herself. So I think it's really important. Now, having said all that, I, you know, I love doing this book, and I did. I wrote that book, I think, in two months. I was a madman. It was all in me. It came pouring out. You know, I mean, it was, I've never experienced anything like I did when I wrote that book. Uh, and I do have a point of view about Marvin. I get to analyze him and talk about the Oedipus complex and his suicide, and he really, you know, blah, blah, blah. I get to... I get to... I get to sort of be me, which is a highly intellectual, analytical person, which, you know, I can't be in the autobiography. So that, from that I derive certain pleasures. And I think, you know, the book's always been in print, and I'm proud of it, and it's been through a lot of editions, and I hope it'll live. Um, how how do you decide, David, to um, to start with um, the chapter one? Because there are there's some forwards and acknowledgments, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but then it's like you give the first phrase, like the first phrasing is to Marvin's father, even, and mm-hmm. and this seems to be a book about mm-hmm. always touching back on fathers, and yeah. and so how did why did you why did you decide to to make that move, Marvin's father, the first sentence. Again, I mean, I work by instinct. 
I really work by instinct. And now that you're asking me that question, it really seems like such a great choice because it is a father-son story. You know, that's what drives the story. That's what killed him. That's what motivated him. But at the time... It just seemed natural to start there. It seemed natural. I mean, that's like the lack of outline. I just... I start, you know, I hear the core changes and I improvise over the changes. And and so oh, so had you already written the articles cuz I was on, again on your website I yeah. was looking at that where about dealing with fathers. Um mm-hmm. and I was I was just wondering that cuz did you in your own life is that some way Fear you connected with Marvin Gaye? Yeah. yeah. Well, I have a my dad's 93 years old. Love him very much, Milton Ritz. And we've struggled our whole life, and he's a big kind of figure in my life and a powerful intellectual guy and a brilliant guy. And a, and so I certainly know about father-son struggles, and I identified with Marvin, who had a charismatic father, and I have a charismatic father, and a father who seemed to know it all, and I had a father who seemed to know it all, and I had a father who, who I had to defeat in a certain metaphorical way uh, in order to move on. I had to destroy in a metaphorical way before I moved on. I had to destroy his myth or the myth that was keeping me from being me. So yeah, we really related big time on having a charismatic dad and and so it's so is that what did you find yourself then shaping the story at the end to to have him almost because it sounds like mm-hmm. y- you you believe that Marvin Gaye was or and his, maybe his sister even believes it that because you put her voice in there yeah. that he he knew in some way knew what he was doing oh he definitely knew what he was doing provoked well, this I, I I I mean to death to me yeah what's inarguable is that he wanted to die now we know that because he tried to commit a suicide in Hawaii a year and a half before he died. He tried jumping out of car in L.A. four months before he died. He talked about suicide all the time. He just didn't do it. He lacked whatever it is you need to kill yourself. And we also know that he gave his dad the gun with which his dad killed him. And we also know that his dad told him a lot of times, you know, if you also, ever lay a- I brought you into this world, I can take you out. And we also know that on the day that Marvin died, Marvin beat up his dad, you know, hoping his dad would do what his dad did, which was take the gun that Marvin gave him and shot him through the heart. So that, um, and also Marvin in his brilliant theatrical, you know, Marvin had this incredible sense of drama. And boy, you're talking about sculpting a story and sculpting autobiography and ignoring, I mean, we could talk about it for hours. But anyway, part of Marvin's scheme was get your father to kill you, get out of this life which Marvin clearly wanted out of. But at the same time, condemn your father to the hell that you and your father both believe in through the kind of bizarre, uh, fundamental uh, Christianity that they both embraced. And even beyond that, get your mother to leave your father, which she never did even though Marvin urged her to do that his entire life. But once Marvin was dead, and once she witnessed her husband shoot Marvin, she 
left her husband, which had been a long time ago of Marvin's. So with this one murder, with this one kind of manipulated murder, kind of a forced murder, Marvin in his mind got to check out what she wanted to do, got to uh, send his father to hell, which he wanted to do, and got his mother to leave his father. So it's not on the surface, as you might think, like he was a victim of something. You're, you're saying he was, the, in some ways, had the power of the orchestration of it. And Yeah, I see it. Well, I mean, victimization, he might have been victim as, he might have been a victim of a certain madness, but I think within that madness, his orchestration, his ability to manipulate and move the pieces on the chessboard were all there. I mean, he was he orchestrated this demise. There's no doubt about it. And so it's it's interesting because it seems like he had this really, you know, you you got the divided soul right like even even your relationship then had its problems because of the fighting over the rights to the credit yeah. for sexual healing yeah um yeah he cheated me i i'm i mean part which, of, which almost seems common like looking at the world that you've, you've written about in motown and barry people gordy steal and, songs right. man people steal songs all the time but you know in or, my case yeah not just motown yeah but in my but in my case i was so naive because you know when the album came out and uh sexual healing was in it on it on the back of the album if you look at the original it says it says to david ritz whose brilliant literary mind which i was very pleased to read created the title sexual healing and then if you look on the song sexual healing my name's not on as a composer and you can't copyright a title so there's no there's there isn't any value in that so i called him up and i said marvin what you know kai you know wrote the lyric well i changed some of the lyric you know he changed a couple of words I said, yeah, but, oh, but don't worry about that. I'll give you some uh, money if it's a hit. And, of course, began to climb the charts and kept calling him, and he kept putting me off. And and uh, I met him at the hospital one day when his brother, uh, Frankie's wife, had a baby, and he was kind of mean. He kind of said, why well, can't be asking me about this money? I said, because, well, you know, I want some money, man. You know, we wrote this thing together. Of course, I had the tape of us writing it together because oh, I was taping the interview and right. on the tape it says David wrote this great song I love this we're writing this together you know there was no there's no argument about it I mean you know I mean you know and it wasn't a figment of it, your imagination you know and then he puts my name on the back of the album you know putting me in the place of creation and all this stuff but anyway to make a long story short I I called up a friend of mine Jerry Wexler whose book I wrote Earlier, he was a racist producer, and I told him the story, and he screamed over the phone, Sue him! Sue him! Sue him! Oh, dear. So I did, and won. <laughs> and, and so that, in that way, you didn't let just your words go, go to someone else. <laughs> it was too, it was too, yeah. and, and also he was crazy at that point. I mean, poor baby. I mean, he was so riddled with drugs and paranoia that there was no way he was going to kind of see clearly. Um, it's it's amazing because with these people like that or the, a couple of the people that you've written the autobiographies, for mm -hmm. example, Marvin Gaye and mm -hmm. Ray Charles, mm -hmm. you've saw, saw them on this uh, amazing trajectory yeah. of their lives, mm -hmm. like when they were, um, like really f flourishing in 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 many ways, and then in, when they were t weakening, yeah, too, yeah, 
Yeah. No, and that's interesting to be that much a part of their lives. And that's what the wonderful thing about ghost writing as opposed to, you know, journalism where you do an interview with a person for half an hour a day and you do a profile of a gentleman's quarterly or escort. When you ghost write a book, you move into their lives, you move into their heads. And it's a privilege and it's and it's an adventure. And how you conduct yourself who you are to them, are you a friend, are you a confidant, are you a business associate, are you a fellow poet, are you a party goer with them, a reveler, you know, it's all so, so interesting. And that's another reason why I'm so grateful uh, to do the work I do. It's a lot of fun. Well, David Ritz, thanks for being here today. I appreciate you. You're great at this. And uh, and, and this was a kick in the head. (laughs) Thanks thanks for listening to Living Writers, everyone. Thanks to David Ritz. Thanks to Michael Awkward for being here, too. Alex Belhodge for being our engineer. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, May 1st, 2013 in Los Angeles. I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, protesters mark International Workers Day in cities across the U.S. and around the world. We'll go to New York, where activists call for immigrant rights and better conditions for restaurant workers. Seattle, Washington, where activists have cited FBI surveillance and much-criticized police tactics. And Istanbul, Turkey, where unions and activists defied a protest ban and were met with tear gas and arrests.